Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence at James. As usual, my co-conspirator is Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. And your host, myself, Harry Kemsley. Sean, we picked up on the last podcast on the terrible events that we're seeing uh, rolling out in and around Gaza with Israel, etc. We talked about at the end of that podcast coming back to look at what our colleagues have been doing particularly from an open source perspective. And therefore, I'm delighted to invite back Elliot Chapman. Hello. Uh, Lewis Smart. Hello, Harry. Great to be back. And also to invite uh, Amael Kotlaski, another colleague from Jane's. Hello, Amael. Hello. Thanks for having me. Lewis Smart is the manager of the Jane's Country Intelligence, Middle East and North Africa, MENA team. And given his background as a CBRN analyst, you may remember we previously discussed with him the nuclear program in Iran. Lewis also covers CBRN issues across the MENA region. Elliot Chapman is a research analyst in the Jane's MENA team, where he focuses on the close monitoring and analysis of Israeli security operations and Palestinian military activity. Before working at Jane's, Elliot worked in a political risk analysis role and has also served in the British Army Reserves. Emil Kotlarski has been responsible for the Jane's infantry weapons data set for the last four and a half years, as well as recently becoming the manager of the weapons team, which oversees the totality of the Jane's weapons data set, which includes air, launch weapons, naval weapons, strategic weapons, infantry weapons, and the Jane's Ammunition Handbook. Amael has a bachelor's degree in international politics and a master's in international security. All right, so gents, let's go back to where we left off from the last podcast, where we had essentially started to understand a sort of a foundational understanding of what was going on, how the uh, Israeli forces were responding, et cetera, et cetera. And that we've, we said we would be moving on to other activities. And one of those activities, I think we mentioned in the last podcast, was moving towards the building of scenarios and how that might become one of those things that the open source environment can support. Before we go to those, though, let's just get from yourself, Elliot, a quick update on what has changed? What, what are the key insights you've seen since we last spoke about the situation? And in a brief sense, how have you managed to gain those insights from the open source environment, Elliot? Yeah, thanks, Harry. Um, I think that the sort of the, the really big things that we've seen happening since uh, since our last conversation has been a, a, a general broadening of the uh, of the conflict politically. It's become a, a very international issue. I mean, right from the start, of course, it it was an international issue, but there's been a lot of um, engagement by uh, foreign leaders uh, around the world uh, in the issue directly with uh, Israel uh, and and the Palestinian Authority and other leaders in the region as well but also alongside that that political level which in terms of open source uh, is, is pretty easy to track of course because we're just looking at the news and and, and statements uh, that type of thing uh, so alongside that we're also looking at but for myself specifically, um, the regional actors in the in the immediate neighbourhood of of Israel and Palestine, looking at uh, specifically 
what is going on in the north, in, in Lebanon, uh, in Israel's north, and also, of course, what's happening in the West Bank, in, in Gaza. And I think what we've been seeing, really key events in, in these areas, is a is a, a heightening of tensions uh, across across the board um, and the risks of, uh, to, to use a, a commonly used phrase, a kind of contagion of uh violence throughout the region um, and that's something that we've been been tracking very closely um, in terms of the actors in these areas um, open source is, is a little more tricky than just reading the news we we'd have to sort of delve into things like um, social media channels it's little nooks and crannies of of the internet where um these groups such as Hezbollah or militants in the West Bank like to uh, freely uh, disseminate their, their propaganda so that their signaling is a big part of, of how we gather information. And of course, we have our own events data as well, which is always very helpful to keep track of major events that are happening um, and allows us to kind of step back and, and take a look at a, a, a broader perspective of events. Very good. And so, Lewis, um, now taking a slightly wider aperture around mm -hmm. this part of the world, what else are we seeing? What are the other uh, insights that you've seen since we last spoke? Yeah, so, uh, it's, yeah, as Elliot mentioned, there is a wider kind of contagion here. And the regional picture is going to heat up and it is heating up. And the interesting thing, how to track this via OSINT, is I think OSINT is increasingly able to give us a strategic and operational indication of where this regional picture and dynamic might emerge. So in one case, the one of the big angles of this conflict will be Iran's influence um, and policy on the conflict, uh, and that will generally be exercised through Iraq and through the Shia-aligned groups and the popular mobilization forces, and how these groups can well, we'll probably likely start going through to Syria uh, to support Hezbollah uh, there. In terms of the OSINT, I think actually, as Elliot said, the place to start is sometimes the statements, the most obvious releases by governments. And it's interesting because PM Sudani released on the 9th of October a speech where he vigorously supported the Palestinian cause. But he said to quote, as a government, we have expressed our position and the political forces have also expressed statements. Now, that's almost certainly in reference to the manifold uh, Shiite militia groups in the PMF, Kateyeb Saida Shuhada, Kateyeb Hezbollah, Badir organization, uh, etc., Asayib Al Al Haq, they have all expressed strong statements saying that any involvement of the US um, in this conflict, especially, will trigger a backlash. So that sets the strategic picture. And then so via OSINT, the, the task now is to say, OK, well, we know the broad, we've got a good angle on the strategic intel picture here. How about the operational? We can see and we have seen that there have been a couple of drone attacks in Iraq um, that was reported by kind of OSINT accounts or, you know, kind of on the social media. It was confirmed uh, by a CENTCOM press release uh, where there were two drones and they defended against three drones, sorry, near US and coalition forces in Iraq, minor injuries by coalition forces. So we can start to see that the PMF groups will probably start to go, maybe start moving material into Syria. 
and they also may start to strike US targets in Iraq. Now, that seems to be the broad strategic and operational angle, I think, for those groups at the moment and how this regional picture might start to emerge. And in fact, Biden also called PM Sudani again. It was either yesterday or the day before to explicitly in, in the White House press statement to prevent escalation of the conflict. So that's how I'm starting to build the broad strategic picture for OSIN. At the operational level, it's using our foundation intel on these PMF groups that we have to assess, well, what capabilities do they have? What are their leadership? What is their prior existing relationship with Hezbollah? A lot of these groups worked with Hezbollah in Syria during the civil war. So we can start to build that picture. Tactically at the moment, there isn't as much OSIN. I expect any involvement by the IRGCQF with these groups will be as secure as possible. They have pre-existing comms channels that OSINT may struggle to get a hold of. But from the strategic and operational picture, we can start to say that it's likely that these groups will either increase their attacks with an Iraq on US coalition forces or are likely starting to position material into Syria to support that kind of northern front uh, with Hezbollah. Okay, perfect. All right. So, Sean, I'm going to just pivot the conversation slightly here. Um, one of the things that I've detected and I we've talked about before on these podcasts is the the power of information in these environments and the mis and disinformation that will be flowing around now for a variety of uh, purposes. What have you seen? What are your thoughts about the mis and disinformation work that's going on right now around this particular campaign? Thanks, Harry. Uh, I think this is absolutely critical to what's going on right now. <clears throat> if you sort of look at the strategic level and uh, what we'd call the strategic centre of gravity, so what is the key thing that all the all the uh, belligerents actually need and that's the international support from from governments from partners from allies and the way to do that is through yes diplomacy but also propaganda now what we're seeing right now is a huge amount an absolutely enormous amount of misinformation and disinformation and just a reminder disinformation is the deliberate um sharing of of information intelligence that is not true in order to support your case and then misinformation which can be anything from circular reporting of something that's wrong misinterpretation and to this case particularly that the, the all conflicts are polarized but in this case the polarization from people that are outside of the immediate uh, environment is absolutely massive now what that does is uh, you've heard again we've talked about before the echo chamber people repeat what they like to see here or what they've heard because they're in the same sort of environment in terms of their friends and the people that they actually um, take social media of um, and it reinforces not necessarily the truth and we're seeing that in absolute buckets right now now what that does for me is it validates entirely professional open source intelligence Again, you know, many times I've said that the first report is generally the wrong one. And once again, this seems to be the case. So, you know, the tragic incidents at the, at the hotel, of course, uh, sorry, the hotel, the hospital, Al-Akhli uh, Hospital. Um, now, you know, people are still working on what exactly happened there. But there were some very, very quick and irresponsible judgments on who did what. Um, and it's only now that um, you know some reputable people are starting to say, right, where is the evidence? Collect all the evidence, whether that is imagery, whether that is you know open source uh, intelligence in terms of of uh, ground based photographs, imagery, whether that is um, comms intercept again at the unclassified level, or whether it's just social media and trying to get an objective view of what happened. 
Um, and that's the layering, that's the multi-source, it's all the tradecraft things that we've been talking about to come up with the most likely outcome. And again, of course, you've got to be careful then. This is where the professionalism comes in because, you know, it's all very well taking a subset of social media. But, you know, if you're taking it from one part of the world or, or one of the perspectives, you're just going to reinforce unconscious bias. So you've got to step back and take that objectivity. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Now, when we spoke last time, unless I'm confusing a conversation we had after the podcast, I'm pretty sure we talked about how we might start to build scenarios to address what is going on in a variety of different ways. So Lewis, let me come to you first in terms of how we would use scenarios to start to build hypotheses and indeed compete hypotheses to start to find what we might describe as being not necessarily, quote, the truth, ground truth, but the more compelling, the more legitimate, the more plausible outcomes or events. How do you and your team go about building those scenarios? So it's it, it's sort of a multidisciplinary uh, approach, typically involving uh, various SMEs, uh, and we sort of get our heads together and uh, often will assess what available uh, evidence is brought forward to us. Um, generally speaking, my team uh, from within Jane's acts more on an advisory role. So uh, we spend, our, our day jobs are basically maintaining our, our equipment database records and make sure they're up to date. So typically we will get approached by other teams such as the country risk team or sometimes external clients or, or other organizations uh, recently obviously been doing a lot of work with, with media organizations who have been Providing us with with um, with evidence to to assess basically and to and to to give our opinion on, so it's a bit of a collegial approach. Um, each of my my team members have their own domain of expertise, um, but of course we you know, sometimes that overlaps a little bit, so we tend to share uh, opinions, um, and we try to sort of test our hypothesis whether or not the evidence that's brought forward to us um, with obviously the full knowledge that it may be limited. It's only a, a small portion of what we can see. There's, there's all these caveats that go around it. Um, you know, is the evidence brought forward to us? Can we test that? You know, does it match what the, the hypothesis is, is being brought forward to? Um, and can we offer, offer other alternatives as likely scenarios? Um, the degree of which will depend on, on each scenario that there's no, there's no, I'm afraid there's no hard rule on, on, on that particular um that particular front but it's basically a lot of image analysis for, for the most part uh, for what we do um a bit of audio oftentimes if that if, the, if we've got video that also uh, brings up audio we recently worked on a project for uh, um a few days before the uh, the attack on the hospital as well where uh, one group was alleging a certain attack and uh, we found that the uh, available audio for, for some of the videos that were captured during the attack were i, I think uh, quite invaluable in trying to test that hypothesis and whether or not a certain type of weapon was that was claimed to be used was in fact used um and it's it, yeah it will vary uh, and we'll oftentimes we'll we'll come back with a, a various degrees of certainty or uncertainty as to as to what happened um but it's a usual discussion so it's really yeah. it's really just one uh, SME uh, subject matter expert that basically just is in charge of of, of giving their opinion. Oftentimes, it'll there'll, there'll be a bit of a discussion and debate. Um, and in the case, for example, of the the hospital attack, um, yeah. we still haven't reached a conclusion yet. That we've been able to perhaps disprove certain certain hypotheses, or it's not disproved, but but um, set aside, uh, thinking that the evidence does not support certain hypotheses. Uh, but yes, as we say, we, there, there are still basically imagery and, and evidence coming out of that particular event. So um, we tried not to, to act too hastily. Um, and oftentimes we waited for, for more of those footage, that footage to, to come out, as we suspected it would for, for such an event that would, uh, it's a serious event, of course, but one that would draw a huge amount of media attention 
uh, an international intention, of course. And as mm -hmm. Sean said, uh, a lot of people reacting very, very quickly to, to very limited information uh, at the time. Yes. So, Elliot, let me come back to you then. So, when we spoke last time, as I've said already in this podcast, we started to build that foundational experience, uh, exposure. We started to understand the foundational intelligence picture. We're moving on to scenarios. And now Amal has just explained to us how we start to build those scenarios in that multifaceted way. What kind of conversations have you been having as the direct analyst directly involved in this with those colleagues around you to help you start to build out the more likely scenarios versus the ones that, uh, as Amal has said, we set aside? How have you gone about doing that? It's a very good question. Uh, I'd say I'm going to immediately go to the, the main thrust of our efforts at the moment, which is looking at uh, at Hezbollah in, in the north. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of interest on um, whether or not Hezbollah will attack Israel, you know, to, to keep it blunt, really, um, in the in the current scenario of this potentially existential crisis for one of its uh, its, if not allies, at least one of its aligned um, interests in uh, in Gaza. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions around will will or won't Hezbollah enter this this conflict, and so what we're trying to trying to build is. Does does Hezbollah, um, you know, desire um, entry into this conflict? What are its capabilities if if it does do that? Um, what are its options? What kind of things has it said it would uh, like to do in terms of uh, describing its doctrine um, and that kind of thing? So, the first port of call is always to review what what we have, um, what we what we know. Uh, at Jane's, and of course, we have a lot of foundational information on on Hezbollah. Um, we have, you know, group profiles, lots of pieces of research that have been done over the years. Um, lots of excellent uh, analysis on their kind of weapon systems that that they have available. All that kind of stuff that um, people like Amel are very good at. Um, so we sort of initially just go into our own ecosystem and, and analyze our own own information, and then again, it's it's a matter of working with other um, experts in in Jane's to build possible scenarios um, within the constraints of what what we know. Uh, of course, there's always going to be elements to uh, to uh, attacks that that or, or scenarios that we don't know clearly as we've as was demonstrated on the 7th of uh, sure. october there's there's yeah. things that we cannot cannot model but sort of i think from our perspective what what we're trying to do is say here are the things that we know and based on the things that we know these are the most credible credible scenarios uh, that could come from this and here's how they might play out and so for for hezbollah um what we've really been uh, interested in in exploring is could it conduct an offensive right now? And I think there's a lot of questions for us around that um, about the efficacy of of uh, an offensive it could conduct, uh, let alone the kind of overall strategic thinking that that might be going through Hezbollah's mind at the moment, which is you know it does it does it get involved and risk uh, an existential crisis um, that it may not necessarily need to uh, to bring upon itself. And the same kind of calculus goes for a lot of the actors in the region. I'm sure Lewis can speak to to some of these other other actors, and in particular Iran as well. Um, but, with, but with Hezbollah, especially in the in the context of a, a really heightened sense of uh, awareness in in, in the Israeli defence forces, 
um, and a, a large deployment along its northern border um, that the known uh, or at least what we un understand to be Hezbollah's doctrine uh, seems to be not well suited to the current uh, the current level of um, uh, Israeli uh, forces in 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 its north. Um, so, what what we're we're kind of positing from that is that it really Hezbollah is in a dangerous position actually, and it's put itself in a dangerous position from its rhetoric and the way it's uh, essentially navigated the, the the conflict since 7th of October. Um, and what we've seen is this real uh, desire to test the limits of what Israel uh, is and isn't willing to do. I mean, clearly Israel does not want to open up a second front at this time. Um, but also, if Israel feels that it has to, it, it may do that. And and of course, Hezbollah doesn't want to, to, um, to put itself in a position where uh, it, it's it's under threat when it doesn't need to um, or feels it doesn't need to. And so that's the kind of thing that we're modeling. Those are the, the ways that we're thinking at the moment. And of course, our, our own information and the social media channels that we monitor, um, monitoring the, the kind of cadence and, and scale of attacks that are happening along along the borders. Uh, the Israel-Lebanon uh, border is something that we're, we're monitoring very, very closely. And of course, in an environment like this, where there's a lot of ideological, religious, um, and a lot of different actors as well. I mean, Hezbollah is not the only people operating in in that region in, in Lebanon. There are a lot of other other actors. I think early on we saw uh, Hezbollah congratulating Islamic Jihad for an attack that they conducted in Lebanon uh, into into Israel. Um, so there's a lot of known unknowns uh, to. to put it in, in uh, one way about the things that are going on there. But as I say, to bring it back to the beginning, the best that we can do is say, what do we know? What are we confident in? And we go from there and build build scenarios. Very good. Sean, I'm going to come to you just a moment to, to go back to a question I asked you in the last podcast about what's happening behind the Green Bay's wall, what's happening inside the vault, inside those agencies that you know so well, that might be different to what's happening in the open source environment. So I'll come back to you in just a second with that, Sean. But Lewis, if I just could turn to you for a second in that, that wider perspective that you gave us earlier, in terms of scenario development for the wider contingencies that may or may not uh, appear, how do we do yeah. that in the open source environment? So, yeah, I don't think I actually need to go into specifics in terms of actors, because I think actually Elliot's, what he talked about with Hezbollah, applies across the field, really. It's amazing how quickly, with OSINT information proliferating, it's amazing how quickly the online world and people can suddenly question themselves. I think a great example of this, I think it was a week ago, where there were reports uh, in the online space about uh, Hezbollah sending over people on paragliders to Israeli villages in the north. Quickly, you know, everyone was exploding online. There was worry and panic and all sorts of commentary on it. But actually, that, as I said, that's that information turned out to be incorrect to begin with. The first report was wrong. The second report is actually when we step back, that is does not fit a model, right? So we, as, essentially, when I'm seeing that information, I'm turning it into intelligence by going, well, actually, that information is very out of the blue. It does it does not fit prior existing models of actually how we treat actors and what we know about these actors. And I think that's important to note because we're quickly when we see these events, people suddenly doubt themselves as to everything that existed before. And I think we need to integrate open source information into that intelligence cycle to go. Actually, Hezbollah is a rational actor. 
and it is has this prior doctrine and it has this prior capabilities and it has these prior relationships and it has these prior interests and we have to fit the information into that model and the cycle you know verifying disseminate you know all that stuff that intelligent cycle that wasn't done in the first half hour of those information reports and actually it turned out again i think elliot's analysis actually of this is is quite spot on he's talking about hezbollah in a prior model that we know before the conflict which does help us now there's also a rational factors at play. This is a human conflict. It's full of human actors. We've also talked about how actually the model that Hezbollah may want to enact is under pressure from irrational factors like pride, like performative need to um, actually enact as a protector for Muslims and Palestinians. Those are rational factors are a pull on the rational actor model. So for me, I think we need to with a plethora of open source information, we need to make sure that the models and the intelligence cycle are adhered to so that it becomes OSINT. Uh, and, you know, we could say that when that reports of attacks happened, okay, it's possible that we have a very low confidence that that is the case. That's where we need to be in a position and put it through our models and tradecraft and not just respond emotionally and think that everything prior to these information events doesn't matter. Got it. Very good. That's uh, fascinating. I'm going to come back to that. Maybe we'll look again at the uh, the hospital incident and a mail at that point. Maybe we'll have a look at uh, how we might look at weapons effects, knowing how weapons operate. But we'll come back to that in a second. So, Sean, um, take yourself back, if I may, to the DIA, to NATO, to any of the many intelligence agencies you've worked in at various levels, including very senior ones. What's going on inside those organizations right now? Well, firstly, there will be a lot of very, very busy people, you know, very focused and uh, some of them who have to get themselves up to speed particularly, but it'll be happening at three levels as well, very much so. You know, I, I don't, there's such a blurring between the strategic operation and tactical, but again, it applies here. So at the tactical level, very much so formation as well, the rest of it, there will be special forces that are getting ready or preparing or planning to deploy for, for instance, hostage rescue or anything else they might be asked to do, um, you know, rapier-like type activity. At the operational level, obviously, the UK has got a tax task force, a small uh, naval task force going out that way. But they'll be they'll be looking at the protection for that and how they also integrate with with other uh, allies, but also looking wider at in terms of UK footprint from a military uh, perspective. Where where are we likely to see the the contagion word as we keep talking about? So you know where where would our own forces be at threat? Whether that's embassies, whether it is you know, deployed forces uh, places and even at home, actually. And then a huge amount of effort will be at the strategic political level. So, you know, the political leaders who are engaged in some pretty um, intense diplomacy right now will be wanting to know what other leaders are thinking, what other countries are, are planning to do, what they may do, um, how do we influence them and how do we prevent the escalation that everybody is concerned about. So at all three of those levels, um, there will be a huge amount of effort going on and a lot of intelligence sharing as, as well amongst trusted trusted organisations. And again, this is, as we discussed before, somewhere that that certainly for those that are are less integrated in terms of intelligence sharing would be, you know, using the the open source side of things. But the scenario planning is very, very critical here. And, you know, I'm pleased that you're doing this. The what ifs, the so what's, because 
you know, the, the nirvana that we've always talked about getting to is predictive intelligence. Well, you know, perhaps another pod, podcast we can talk about the intelligence failure that happened here. And I think it, it's one of those few cases there was an intelligence failure. But how do we get to where we really want to get to in the entire community to predictive intelligence? And that's all about where you look. You've got to be looking in the right place first. You've got to understand the ten, intent and the capabilities, plus also the opportunities. So it's, it's the threat matrix, isn't it? And that means looking at all the factors that, that I know you guys have been doing. So, you know, develop your scenarios, look about what's the most likely versus the, the highest risk, um, um, because those two are not necessarily the same thing, and then do your evaluation against each, each of those. And all of that will be going on right now. Yeah, I, I can only begin to imagine. So you've got teams of people looking at Ukraine, teams of people looking at uh, the situation right now in the Levant. You've got doubtless teams looking at sort of business as usual work going on around the world, huge amounts of focus for some on the South China Sea and Chinese and so on and so forth. Dividing up your resources must be becoming, must be becoming a, a critical issue in terms of the intelligence picture we're building. Uh, and yeah, absolutely right. And this is where the prioritization, come, prioritization comes in. And at some stage there'll be there is just too much going on. You've got to make best effort, which again is down to a a, a sort of feder federated approach, both within formations, but also trusted partnerships and alliances. Right, you look at that because we're looking at this, but everyone's going to have a look to an extent at, at, at everything because you've got to get a national perspective. But that, yeah, I mean, I, I can't over uh, overestimate how busy everybody's going to be. I mean, as an aside on that, you know, I, I hope, well, and I'm sure this is you guys are doing that, but someone is stepping back saying, OK, what else is about to happen? Yep. Because if I'm a bad actor right now, you know, whether, I, whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea, whether it's, you know, China looking uh, east, you know, now is the perfect time to be doing something that you would not necessarily be doing, you know, uh, deliberately over a longer time and go, is this the opportunity, whether or not it's a miscalculation? Yeah, interesting question, isn't it? Um, as we now all draw up, draw our eye to Levant, as we've done with Ukraine, you know, should we in the commercial sector be now starting to say, OK, our partners, our customers are now up to speed with the foundational stuff that we can support them with. We're giving them scenario support. Now we're going to pivot and start looking around the perimeter because there's probably threats out there. An interesting point. Yeah. All right. Let me bring us back then to this um, horrific incident in the, with the hospital. And uh, Amel, at this point, I'm going to bring you in again, as I said a moment ago, in terms of how open source analysts with the expertise you've got can look at the available evidence such as it is it's not forensic it's going to be at best at distance it's not going to you know, i'm not going to be able to show you the fragments of the device potentially not for a while yet perhaps how do you start to assess the damage seen or the weapons that might be used how do you start to do that Emil? so at first as oftentimes we'll take we'll take basically some of the claims that are circulating or being or being presented by by various people. Typically, in this case, it'll be initially sort of the the, the primary protagonists of, of of this conflict. It'll be either the words of how you know Hamas, or, or and then the res in this case the response of, of the IDF. Um, and both had different claims about what exactly occurred uh, during this event. Um, Hamas, of course, was the, were the first ones to to, to present their claim that. Um, the, the hospital was was struck by an IDF strike. I believe the original claims were an airstrike, but they weren't very specific. They just simply blamed uh, this on, on the IDF. They don't have to be very specific in, in other cases. It doesn't suit, it doesn't suit their political needs. Uh, the IDF was a bit slow in responding, but the IDF basically prepared to then release a number of um, 
pieces of evidence, including drone footage that was also quite quickly an open source intelligence account sort of diffusing uh, videos filmed uh, of that night of an apparent uh, rocket launch. Uh, or several rocket launches and one in question appearing to suffer some kind of um, of malfunction uh, just after prior to launch. Uh, obviously, it's always made more difficult by the fact that it's happened at night and therefore the visibility is very low. Um, so you're sort of having to sort of uh, fill in the blanks somewhat a little bit with your own expertise of what could have happened. Um, the IDF then presented the fact that the rocket launch nearby, basically one of the launches failed, the rocket fell back to the ground and potentially impacted the hospital. Um, the footage at that time showed something happening to one of the rockets almost immediately followed you know a few seconds later by a fairly large fireball that happened um on the ground which we assumed at the time would be sort of around the grounds of the hospital itself um it would have to wait until i think it was only until yesterday if, if memory serves that we started having actual footage of the impact point or the alleged impact point uh, on the grounds of the hospital itself so um obviously we were treated to uh, uh, a scene of it's a fairly it's a fairly it's not a particularly large compound um it was smaller than i thought initially I, i've not been familiar with that particular hospital in gaza i only became aware of its existence just like i've suspected the majority of people um after the strike happened um a, a, you know a car park with lots of cars on fire so certain suddenly you start to or at least cars that were on fire um and destroyed by fire so that already begins to build a picture on the ground uh, you know, again, going into assessing weapon effects. So what are we seeing? You know, what, what are we? Can, can we see any evident damage on the buildings? What, what is the pattern of the damage on the buildings? What is the nature of the pattern on the buildings? So we're seeing fragmentation damage. You know, basically holes just punched through windows and, and, and brick walls. Some some damage to roofing. Uh, some of the tiles on some of the roofs. Uh, one of the roofs seemed to be damaged by fire. Um, some fencings that were that were blown away. And then we had to wait a little bit more. And then we started seeing the actual crater itself. Possibly one of the most important pieces of evidence, because uh, in the initial assessment that the IDF gave, um, they said there was no visible cratering. Um, in the drone footage, I believe that they they overlaid with some uh, some some symbology. And some, uh, they said that there was no apparent uh, crater. Uh, turns out that there is a, a small crater, not a particularly large one, which I understand had um, it might have been obstructed by one of the um, the wrecks of the cars that were in the car park at the time. Um, uh, the footage on the ground shows one of the cars being overturned. So to get it, that again, that's an interesting piece of information. Was it overturned to make way for the for, so, so people could photograph the crater, or was it actually overturned by the blast, or what, by whatever hit the ground? Um, what it's clear is something hit the ground. Something landed in that in that car park uh, and 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 detonated quite violently and set fire to the cars and probably created a sort of congregation with various cars basically catching fire and. Um, cars don't typically explode, but uh, a car catching fire can be quite a violent. Um, it's an unpleasant event to be to be around anyway. Um, but some of the damage pattern didn't seem started making sense if we're thinking about a traditional airstrike, right? A traditional aircraft launch bomb. The damage seemed more or limited uh, than what we would expect from a even a a fairly small a five hundred pound class air, aircraft bomb. Um, now the Israelis do have access to smaller, lower yield air launched ordnance. Um, so you have to also kind of balance the, about what you're seeing with what you know that one of the you know the either sort of protagonists have in their inventory. To the best that you can, a country like Israel will often have uh, weapons that we aren't necessarily publicly known, um, such as the and so, you know so that sort of other other states. So you always have to keep that in mind. You may be seeing something new that you you haven't actually encountered before. 
unlikely, but it, it is a possibility. Um, and so, yeah, by looking at the cratering, looking at the impact angle of the cratering, looking at the scoring on the ground, so it's basically like a splash, you sort of get to understand which, you know, from which direction the impact occurred, uh, which direction was, was fragments, you know, fragments and debris sort of sprayed across across the uh, that, that particular yard. And does that match with the damage pattern you're seeing uh, on objects around? Unfortunately, there's also the evidence of, of people being hit um, by the time those, those videos were were released, the, uh, the the people have been treated, have been removed, but you can still see blood patches, for example. So you get an understanding of who actually where the victim stood, uh, and how and how potentially that correlates with with how the, the uh, fragments and debris was was um, was projected uh, across that across that level. And so you, you're basically piecing all these little bits together. It's it's. I mean, in a way, it, it is it is sort of analyzing. Like, we said we're not. It's not quite forensic because we can't be there. We can't take accurate measurements, etc. We can't take, you know, samples of explosives, etc. But there is a bit of also just simply analyzing what you see and piecing together a sort of a crime scene and understanding how does this all fit together, and then what do we know that the Israelis have? What we do know potentially the Hamas has. Now we don't. In my team, we don't typically cover day-to-day non-state armed groups, but certain states, certain groups like Hamas, or for example, the Houthis have access to basically state-grade weaponry in some cases, have been provided long-range rockets, not including the homemade ones that they make by by other states, and therefore it is something that we do keep an eye on. So how do we con- you know, compare contrast, you know, the weapon effects we're seeing on the ground with what we know that the, the various belligerents are using or have or have been known to use uh, in inventory and thus basically this match up. Um, so that's more or less the process. So it's a bit painstaking and again, it'll vary based on, on the evidence that we're provided and it's it's an ongoing process in this particular case. Awesome. Well, we're, we're going to come back to this, gents, in another podcast of that, I'm sure. But uh, Sean, you wanted to come in there. We're talking about weapons effects. Uh, I, I was just going to reinforce what Amal said, actually. It, it, yeah, and, and being a little bit modest, yeah, of course, we don't have the forensics. So if you actually got bits of the munition, if you could actually uh, validate what they are, then then very quickly would know. But, you know, crater analysis is, is a, a very well used tool. Um, I'm targeted by background. So in terms of doing our, our battle damage assessment, crater analysis and brilliant modelling out there, which will tell you, give you a really good idea assuming that you are looking at the images that happened afterwards etc cetera, etc cetera. so for example i could tell you straight away that 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 whatever impact as long as it, it that was the impact that we're seeing was not caused by 500,000 or 2000 pound bomb it just wasn't so then that's that so could it be a, a lighter munition okay possible if there's a drone etc cetera, etc cetera. but it gives you a really good start point for what it wasn't doesn't necessarily prove what it was but then exactly as uh, amal said in terms of the angle of of the blast if you like so you know which direction it came from uh, very very important uh, and then the fragmentation damage as well will tell you what sort of explosion it was and uh, generally something about the material so actually over time i think uh, there'll be very good indication um, assuming, as I said before, you've got the ephemeral data that says, yeah, that image actually was taken at that time and that place, um, you know, we, which I think, you know, as the satellite imagery, even with satellite imagery, you can actually do some of that validation as well. So we will be able to get there, but it's back to that case of do the research, do the, do the uh, analysis properly, and that takes a little bit of time. Um, so, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Good. Yeah, I want, I want to emphasise as well. Um, yeah. There is a crater analysis is, is, is one, of the, one of the tools that we use. Um, in this particular case, we've been struck by the lack of, or at least lack of identifiable presence of any fragments or remaining debris from whatever hit 
the ground um, in, in 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 that hospital, which makes sort of analysis a little bit more difficult. Uh, whether you know, I can't speculate as well or not that the debris is there; it's not visible on the photography we've seen, or it was removed prior. Potentially, that's not impossible to to speculate on. Um, we've been doing this work a lot in the context of Ukraine as well as over the last two years and and you know in some cases um a lot of a lot of munitions leave a lot of debris behind um they don't always you know, sort of they don't necessarily get completely vaporized when when they go off and they will leave a lot of stuff behind especially missiles um you know a good example, and you know, this one makes it is an easier example is is there was speculation that uh, the Ukrainians had used uh, attackums for the first time against the Russian airbase. A couple of days later, someone uh, probably from, from Russian sources photographs a, a one of the, the two actually rocket rocket motor sections of the missiles, which are basically discarded or they're jettisoned uh, as part of the flight, its flight profile when, when, it, when it engages. And here you've got a big sort of intact piece of debris with clear markings on the outer side with exactly what it is when it was manufactured. So that's a fairly, <laughs> that's a fairly easy one to, to be able to, to confirm and, and validate. In some cases, yeah, you will be able to find some debris some some you know little little bits of what may to, to most people look like you know charred bits of metal which can be identified as, as something that help, helping helping you to narrow it down but in this particular case it's very difficult because we've seen none of that and there's quite a lot of debris strewn around uh, the the impact site mostly because it was in the middle of a car park and most of the and most of the debris that we can identify are from the cars themselves um <laughs> so and I'm not an automotive engineer so maybe I've I've, I've confused some uh, for, for for homemade uh, rocket parts but um it, it, it exemplifies just how how it varies, um, yeah. and how difficult it can be sometimes to to really ascertain with with any sort of like um, certainty as to exactly what what caused this particular this particular event. Um, so, and as Sean said, sometimes it's it's about also it's not necessarily know, knowing what happened, what exactly caused this event, but also finding the evidence that discards what you know what didn't ha- what didn't cause this particular yeah. event and what wasn't used is can be also as equally important. Yeah, elimination. All right, gents, because time is now against us. Um, let me do this. I'm going to come to you first, Elliot, and then on to yourself, Lewis. Clearly, the work you've been doing has gone through a couple of phases. We've talked about that. We've gone through the foundational understanding. We've gone into scenario building. Uh, Elliot, you've been doing some of the wider perspectives. ML, you've been looking at how we might start to eliminate certain scenarios around the uh, event that happened at the hospital, as horrible as it was. What's next? What are you doing over the next period of days? I'll start with you, Elliot. I think... Um the the immediate concern for us is is now that we've identified areas um of high interest in in my case it's it's lebanon and the west bank it is the first thing that we're doing is continuing to refine our intelligence picture of those those areas um because it's things are quickly moving and as we mentioned there's a lot of variables here that 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 we might not be able to account for there's a lot of things going on tensions are very high um and so if we can get a a, a really really clear picture of of exactly what's going on i mean in in the west bank for example there is uh, i think last night and the night before there's been a lot of rioting and what something that we've seen is that Actually, the Palestinian Authority's security forces themselves are now being targeted by uh, Palestinians in in the West Bank, which is something that we don't really often see. And in fact, the in in these instances, the security forces are being targeted as um, almost accomplices uh, with with Israel for for um, for its its war in in Gaza. So. Things are things are changing. The political landscape in in the West Bank is very fragile as it is, and in a lot of ways, it's it's 
very very tentative uh, situation there. Um, so that that's that's the first thing that that we're doing. Um, and the the other thing that that we're looking at, of course, is we're we're looking forward uh, at scenarios in in Gaza itself. That's primarily coming from other other expertise in the business um, at Jane's that that. Um, have a lot more expertise in in you know war fighting and and that that type of thing. Who can um, speak to how a scenario in Gaza might play out? Because there's still a lot of variables at play there. Um, it's not necessarily set in stone that there's going to be a sort of sweep and clear through all of Gaza. Uh, such an operation is going to take months and months and months. And of course, that then leads into this this scenario where okay, now we need to be aware of of the the let's call it a land uh, invasion into into Gaza by Israel is going to trigger a lot of uh, subsequent events around the world. A lot of actors to to, uh, to are going to be compelled to act. Hezbollah, of course, uh, is one of them. The PMFs that that, that uh, Lewis mentioned as well. Um, so continuing to have high fidelity as 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 much as we can in monitoring those groups, understanding um, the events that that how they might unfold. In Gaza as well uh, is is a high priority for us. Perfect, Lewis. Yeah, just to actually so obviously Elliot is the analyst for that those particular countries and situation. As the manager of the MENA team in country intel, I, I can speak to what Elliot said a little bit. There is we now have to I have to task my broader analysts to start looking at the consequences and the ripple effects of the these events in the broader region. Uh, I've just seen reports that Egypt's president has called for a day of rage um, and protests. There's also an election coming up in December for Sisi, who is economically embattled, let's say, at the moment. Make no mistake, this these events will change the region. Now, it's it's to, it's to what degree and how, and how OSINT can start tracking that. Um, and for us, that's the key thing. And for the wider team, not just regionally, but also across country intelligence and James across the globe, how does this change America's calculation with Ukraine, maybe in terms of support? Maybe it doesn't, but there's going to be a lot of questions on how this conflict in this region will impact rip, uh, as a ripple effect throughout the region. And that's something uh, my analysts and my team need to start focusing on. Perfect, thank you. And Amel, what's your uh, what's your key task in front of you now? So um, we, as I said before, we tend to be more, much more of a support role uh, when it comes to supporting sort of the the other teams. Um, so you know, my my guys will keep uh, badgering away at their own uh, records and making sure everything's up to date. We do keep a sort of watch on what is going on. So there are various we we have various active groups at the moment monitoring Ukraine. Have and have been so for almost two years now, and uh, and now um, there's a, there's now a new group as well monitoring what's going on in Israel with again lots of different SMEs uh, coming together, including myself and some of my team. Um, so we keep an eye on, on this, but typically my role is to support uh, anybody who comes at me with, hey, can you help me with this? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I we don't we don't so much do the big picture stuff. Uh, we do the, each each one of our, our guys is focused on the small picture stuff that can help build the big picture stuff, if that makes sense. So yeah, we we are very much a support role in 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 in, in especially the monitoring that's going on in, in Israel and, and Ukraine, where we you know if if journalists and uh, and other elements for the you know, the OI, we've been supporting consistently the OI three team with uh, equipment identification in uh, in Ukraine, for example. So they 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 cover the events. We help them identify what what kind of kit is used in those events um, to help them with their reports. Those are the kinds of roles we we do. So it's fairly 
ongoing all the time, um, but it is uh, reactive in the sense that you know we only deal with stuff that's brought forward to us in that sense, um, Got it. and we will continue to do so. Very good. Sean, I'm going to come to you in just a moment um, with your one takeaway for this for the audience. Um, I won't go around the room because time is against us. Elliot, one final comment from yourself. Yeah, yeah, just uh, to sort of big up Amel uh, and and his team that, um, you know, the, the people nagging him for support is often me. <laughs> and so uh, they do they do great help. And uh, that's not just a, an external sort of support role. It's it's internal and much appreciated. Yeah, winning together. Thanks very much indeed, Elliot. So, Sean, what's your one takeaway from today? I have one, of course, but what's your what's your one takeaway? I'm going to give you a stiff ignoring and give you three. So firstly, is making sure that the timeliness versus the accuracy um, balance is achieved. You've got to, there's no point in giving stuff out that's 100% right, but so late that it's not usable for anybody. But equally, as we discussed, the first reporting is generally, you know, not at least not if it's not wrong, it's not it's not complete. So getting that balance is really key uh, in the reporting. Linked to that is, um, and you've all mentioned it really, a collaborative approach within your own organisation, because this is so huge now that you know every one little input there could have a massive output somewhere else. Lewis mentioned uh, Egypt, and I think we're going to cover that another time. But you know, it, it, keep an eye on Egypt as well as other parts of the world as well. And then third, that's linked with all that is, and, it, and you know, it's back to what you're saying to me about what would I be doing. One of the key things I'd be doing is trying to work out. How, how I can uh, ensure sustainability with limited resources. This is not going away anytime soon. In fact, it's probably going to get significantly greater you know, as and when the ground of, of offensive starts and there's leakages and you know uh, things happen elsewhere. Um, people are going to remain busy and get tired. So it's right, where are my resources? How do I prioritise again? But how do I make sure I'm using most of my limited resources? Yeah, thank you, Sean. Well, mine actually dovetails quite nicely on the back end of that as a segue. So thank you for that segue, even though you didn't you giving it to me. It's that I believe there is a role for the open source information and the intelligence we derive from it. We've been talking about that for years, certainly on this podcast. I think there's also increasing evidence of the need for the commercial and government organizations to partner up on these things. The amount of resource tracking events around the world is taking up now as it becomes more and more multidiscipline many, many more different types of SMEs being involved than just equipment intelligence, for example, um, demands the ability to bring those multiple resources together, of which we don't have many. So they're scarce resources, and that's going to require us to prioritize. And whilst the agencies of the world quite rightly are looking very, very closely at Ukraine and Israel and probably one or two other places, the commercial world could be looking at the flanks. And that, for me, is what we should be focusing on. With that, I thank the listener for their time in this uh, listening to this podcast. We will, gents, come back to this in a week or so's time just to track this right through from beginning to end. We might be doing this for months. But thank you all very much indeed for your contribution, which has been great. Amel, thank you for coming to the call and for your support to Elliot and the team. And Lewis, Elliot, thank you once more. We'll come and speak to you again very soon, I'm sure. Thanks, gents. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. 